You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is John Bogdanov, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay. With me today is my Fantastic Four host. He's going to be with me together for all of these Fantastic Four episodes. This is Eric Findlay. Hello. And he is actually my brother. And a lot of people say that we sound the same, especially over the phone. So um, we're hoping that you'll be able to uh, tell us apart. <laughs> so this is Eric's voice. And this is Curtis's voice. We'll see. Uh, we'll see if this is confusing. <laughs> um, today, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about Fantastic Four, vol- the Epic Collection, Volume Seventeen, All in the Family, which is nineteen eighty six to nineteen eighty seven, which covers Fantastic Four number two hundred and sixty, uh, two hundred and ninety six to three hundred and seven, plus Annual Twenty, and the miniseries Fantastic Four versus X Men numbers one to four. I had the opportunity to talk to both John Bogdanov, who did the art for the uh, for the miniseries, and Steve Engelhardt, who um, who's the writer for the you know last seven or eight issues of this of this epic collection. And uh, there are some really interesting things to hear, and we I will um, I will splice in some of the clips from those interviews throughout this episode. But if you want to hear the full thing, um, I've put them up on our Patreon site. So. Our supporters, whom I'm dubbing the Epic Marvel Marching Society, uh, will have access to hear these first um, because we really appreciate your support. Uh, and then eventually down the road, I'll be releasing them um, as regular episodes. There are a few episodes up there like uh, stuff from Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco, and, and uh, I'll be um, posting new stuff up there all the time. You can head over to patreon.com slash thunderquack to become a supporter and help us uh, with our just uh, keeping this podcast up and running. Okay, Eric, about yes. this Fantastic Four Volume Seventeen. Um, this is an interesting period for the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Um, when I when I first started reading this, I thought. This is in the middle of like one of the high times of the Fantastic Four. There's probably not much that you really need to know going into this. And then as I started reading, I realized there's a lot that you need to know going into this. Yeah, and for a lot of it, they do a good job of explaining it within the first few issues. Um, but yeah, there's, I think one of the biggest things is that the thing returns to the Fantastic Four in the first issue in this book. Where has he been all this time? Right. Uh, what happens is that back in 1984, which is two years before this starts, um, in the thing number 10, three of the members of the Fantastic Four are swept away to Battleworld to compete in the Beyonder's Secret War. Um, and when, when they return, 
the thing doesn't come with him. He decides that he wants to remain on Battleworld because on Battleworld he has the ability to change back and forth between um, Ben Grimm and the thing. What he doesn't realize is that um, Reed Richards has recently discovered that he has the ability to change back and forth whenever he wants, but actually it's his relationship to Alicia that's causing him to um, uh, basically mentally keep himself in the thing state. So he's actually in the in Battle World in the Thing uh, ongoing series for about a year, and it's only when he uh, at the end of that uh, run that he come uh, toward the end of that run that he comes back uh, to Earth, only to find out that he's been replaced by She-Hulk. Right, and um, during that time he does a little stint as a pro wrestler, yeah, which is where he meets Sharon Ventura. And that comes into play later on in this volume as well. We'll we'll talk about that. Um, and yeah, this is f- immediately following the John Byrne run, one of the most acclaimed runs, um, probably next to Stan and Jack's run themselves. Um, John Byrne's run is one of the, the the highest points in Fantastic Four history, and so this is the the period right after that. Um, John Byrne had been having some. Um, I don't know political behind the scenes issues and got offered the chance to 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 reboot Superman which you know are you going to say no to that probably not <laughs> no I wouldn't <laughs> so so he leaves and we get this sort of interim period which is what most of this volume is uh we get Ronda uh we get um Roger Stern taking up the writing chores uh, with a couple issues with by Tom DeFalco in there, I think, as well, before it actually settles in to its new writer, Steve Englehart. Franklin was born recently? Yeah. No, not, not Franklin has been born recently. Recently, Sue was pregnant with their second child. Oh, that's right, yeah. And that's why she didn't go to Battleworld. Right, exactly, because she was pregnant. And um, the interesting thing is that all of this stuff sort of happens about two years before this collection, but in comic book time, it's actually very recent. Right. Um, so Reed and Sue were pregnant, but they lost their baby in uh, Fantastic Four 267. Um, at the time, they were living in Bellport, Connecticut, because they wanted to um, be away from all of the craziness of the superhero life while she was pregnant. Um, but then um, with the, the loss of the baby, um, they came back um, probably about a year and a half before this, uh, um, the first issue in this volume came out. Right. And, well, and the reason I brought up Franklin earlier is because his powers are developing through this book, and most of that is actually explored in Power Pack. Um, when you can, and if you listen to my interview with John Bogdanov, we actually talk a lot about, a lot about Power Pack, mm-hmm. um, which if you haven't read Power Pack, I actually recommend it. I, I, uh, I binged a lot of it in order to prepare myself for this interview, and it was quite excellent. I actually haven't read as much as I would like to. I, I've read a little bit of it, but um, a lot of those sort of um, C, D, E list characters from the uh, from the eighties, um, I really like them. Uh, but I haven't actually read that much of the Power Pack. I recommend checking it out, especially the first, I don't know, twenty five or so issues are are really great. Um, and it it just builds to this like really epic space battle. But anyway, we're we're going on a tangent yeah. here. If there's ever um, power pack epic collections, then we can uh, talk about yeah. that series in more detail. Yeah. Um, uh, what it, speaking of Franklin and power pack, um, 
you say that his powers are starting to develop, and um, that's actually not really the case. But I'll talk about that more when we get to that issue. Okay. The other thing that we that I think is important to know is that um, Mutant Massacre, the storyline right. in the X Men, just happened. Yeah. Um, just before this volume came out as well, so there's a there's some implications there that uh, that we can talk about when when those that was when um, like the Morlocks kind of got massacred right the, in the underground tunnels of new york yeah, by the reavers by the reavers yeah and that's where archangel loses wings and all that kind of stuff yeah um one thing that i think it's important to mention as we go into this is if you haven't read fantastic four before um th- it's a very different kind of title than a lot of your other typical comic books um the fantastic four are not like the x-men where they try to um uh, bring to light the issues of prejudice and difference um, and hatred and that kind of stuff. Or it's not like the Avengers where um, you're fighting the huge battles for the world and that kind of stuff. Um, the Fantastic Four is focused on relationships primarily. It's about the interaction of good friends and family and how it's not always perfect. Um, in addition to that, there's the theme of scientific exploration and discovery and adventure. But um, it's not actually about fighting the bad guy or having a giant battle. Although they, th- those certainly happen. Oh yeah, <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think Fantastic Four defined the epic battle because one of the first epic battles, <clears throat> epic space battles in Marvel history, is when Galactus came to town. Yeah. In Fantastic Four, forty-eight, forty-nine, fifty. But interestingly enough, though, um, as much as you say it's an epic battle, they didn't really fight him that much. True. Because they couldn't. Right. And they had to have some other way of, of c- just, defeating him. I guess I just mean the um, the idea of the scope, the, the scope of yeah. the larger cosmic universe right. really came out of Fantastic Four. That's right. What did you think about this epic collection in general in terms of the, you know, the physical book, the restoration, the, the, the packaging, the, the way it all fits together? I've always been a, uh, a big fan of the um, pre-computer... Uh, coloring yeah the four color the coloring. four color coloring yeah um i liked it uh but the um the recoloring that they've done in this is really good yeah um there was one mistake that i noticed um where uh she hulk's um coat is colored blue like her costume instead of brown when she's ripping it off but and i don't know if that's something they've they've intentionally maintained from the original yeah, sometimes they do that. If there are coloring errors in the original, they'll stick keep the coloring errors in the restoration because that's how readers experienced it. Sometimes uh, they yeah. change them, but I think that's kind of neat, actually. Yeah, um, yeah, and um, also they include at the very end um, a selection of Marvel Age number forty-eight, um, uh, yeah. and it has some um, uh, Fred Hembeck uh, comics, which I think are really funny, and then. Um, uh, what is that big written section at the end? Um, it's just an article. I yeah, think it's from Mar- Marvel Age as well. Yeah, yeah it is. The, the, the whole part is from Marvel Age. But um, yeah, the article that is written there. It's, it's neat because in the previous versions of these reprint collections, they wouldn't put these things in. Right. And you would, they would otherwise be lost in time. So it's neat that they kind of say, you know, uh, we can throw a couple more pages in here, and this is something that otherwise wouldn't really get reprinted. Yeah, and it's for the people who are listening to this podcast, because you're listening to this podcast because you want to dive deeper into into these issues and, and hear what people have to say. 
well, these articles that they're sticking at the very end are for these exact people. You get to yeah. hear from the creators and that kind of thing. Um, there's also a house ad for um, the new Fantastic Four where where um, Ben has sent a, a group shot to Victor Von Doom <laughs> saying, hey, guess <laughs> yeah. who's in charge now? <laughs> Those pinups are always really neat. They're great. And then um, there's also um, an introduction from Anne Nonsenti, who was one of, an editor. She wasn't editor of these books, but she was an editor for Marvel at the time. Um, she did an introduction to an old Fantastic Four versus the X-Men trade paperback. Um, actually, Anne Nonsenti was the editor for the miniseries. Sorry, that was my mistake there. Um, there's also a few pages of um, original uncolored um, art, scanned from the original art from John Buscema. So that's kind of cool to see. Um, as well as, you know, just some pictures from various trade paperbacks and the essentials collections and that kind of stuff. So yeah, a nice, a nice set of features. We have some listener comments, uh, and so I'm going to read them. Um, on the Marvel Masterworks forum, uh, Drubo says, I haven't read All in the Family since it came out, so forgive me if my memory is a little spotty. I remember liking issue 299 right before the wedding with the She-Hulk and Thing fighting and Ben agreeing to be the best man in the end. Yep, I thought that was a good issue too. Yes. We'll get into that. Um, I also remember Franklin being in peril what seemed like every issue but maybe that was just me um that's actually it happens once i think but um in this issue in this Mm -hmm. volume at least because uh franklin's kind of taken out of the picture pretty quick into it and he actually uh saves the day a few times a few times yeah most of the time when he's there he's not actually in danger because of his um he's in his sort of ghost form right over on facebook James left a comment and said, uh, I didn't hate this volume, but a lot of it felt like treading water, and I didn't like a few takes on the characters. Johnny marrying Alicia and Ben having to man up and deal with it never sat well with me. Quicksilver is an outright villain here, and I hated that too. The the versus X-Men series is a lot of fun, though, and I wish Claremont wrote more FF. I admit I haven't read much of his 2000 run. That's the uh, post Heroes Reborn run. Right. Um, overall, this was probably the most forgettable epic I've read so far. <laughs> and I think that there's a, there's a lot to be said on that because, yes, this could possibly be the most forgettable epic because it is a transitional period. There are right. so many different creators involved. You don't get that overarching consistency right. throughout this one epic. And what, what does he say at the beginning about it? He says, I uh, didn't hate this volume, but a lot of it felt like treading water. Right. And and that's inevitably what you experience when you go through a big change like this yeah. is, well, we got to keep it going until we sort of find our new footing. And Roger Stern was just the temporary guy doing kind of fill-in after fill-in issue until they found the regular replacement. So it kind of is treading water. Uh, but yeah, about his Quicksilver comment, though, um, I I actually kind of disagree with it. Yes, he's the villain of the comic, but there's a very um, well-thought-out reason for it. It's not like he's the hero everywhere else and he just decides to come over here and be the villain. Um, I, I mean, maybe we should talk about it more when we get to that comic, but... Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, we can address that. Um, I got a message through Facebook from Adam, and he says, About FF305, how did you feel about how Englehart portrayed Ben once he finally became the leader of FF? Did you feel it was true to his character historically? Did you like this bolder rendition of the character? 
both before and after, he's not usually written as someone who wants or desires leadership. Heck, in 304, it shows him hesitant, and then the next issue feels like he's swinging all the way to the other side. Um, That's a very good comment. It's not something I really thought about much when I was reading this. One of the earliest things in Fantastic Four, if you go way back to like the first 10 issues or so, is that Ben does sometimes say that he thinks that he should be leader of the Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. It's something, and I think Steve Englehart, when he prepared for this, he went all the way back to the very beginning in order to uh, to get a grasp on, on these characters. Yeah, it shows that he really understands these characters. And and I think the desire for leadership comes out of those early issues. Um, yeah, I think that when initially, when initially um, approached to be the leader, Ben is a little hesitant. But of course, I think anybody would probably be... Um, like, he's all talk until he's like, oh yeah, well, you actually want to do it? And he's like, oh... Um, lead the FF I don't know about that but yeah, he's then, got know, big shoes to fill and he sleeps on it and like yeah I think he can he can do it well and part of it is um, in that issue uh, 304 he is hesitant um, when they're fighting Quicksilver but then um, he's inevitably the one that comes up with the plan to defeat him right and uh, and Reed reassures him that hey you know you made a good call and I think that's sort of the turning point for him where he realizes I actually can do this He's always had the ability to lead, um, but until you actually are put in a position of that, you don't really know if you can or if it's right for you. Anyway, I think it's time that we moved on to the actual issues. Okay, we're going to start with issue number 269. Um, the cover to this one is the the, the classic um, framed frame cover that Marvel did for their 25th anniversary. Although their titles got this uh, this like portrait kind of a cover where you see the heroes in the in the frame and one of the stars from the book gets to be in the center. This one shows the thing because he's coming back in this issue, and it's drawn by a ton of different people. Um, we have everyone from Barry Windsor Smith doing the first 10 pages, which looks just fantastic. Um, Ron Friends, Al Milgram, John Buscema, Mark Silvestri, Jerry Ordway, they're all doing this here. So it, and, it, and a who's who of inkers as well. Vince Coletta, Klaus Jansen, Steve Lealoha, Joe Rubenstein, Joe Sinnott. It's like, you know, really great inkers there too. Mm-hmm. So this one is written, it's plotted by Jim Shooter, and it's actually scripted by Stan Lee this issue so that's kind of cool um and in this one it starts off um ben coming back to town and uh he goes into a flashback so we get um a little summary of the fantastic fours like issue number one their their origin story i think it's a really good time to do that um especially right at the beginning of a of a volume that doesn't really um this is the first fantastic four epic collection yeah that's out there and so it's nice to have um an origin story that's not actually an origin story right it's just a recap yeah yeah and uh and i think i mentioned this in the last episode as well uh first of all this is kind of a fill-in because john Byrne left so they needed to take up some space so they put a put the origin story in here but also this was an age where they didn't really do a whole lot of reprints like the the comics weren't accessible online of course right. and um you didn't have all of these uh long-running um 
long-running things uh, like Marvel Masterworks, I think maybe had just been starting up at that point. And you would, if they were going to reprint something, they'd reprint the earlier issues, like the first hundred. Well, well, and that's what I'm saying is yeah. is um, it's nice to have the, the these issues reprinted in the monthly series that are going to be on spinner racks because if any kid's going to come and pick up a book from the the from the Seven Eleven, it's nice to have these origin stories every once in a while right. for those who didn't know who who don't know what's going on or don't know these characters at all. So these sort of issues are actually necessary back right. in the day. Don't need to know them now. Anyway, uh, tell us a little bit about briefly, just very briefly, <laughs> what happens in this big issue. Well, what we have is uh, the Thing who is coming out of his own personal series. Um, he had a uh, uh, solo series for a while, and at the end of that solo series, he starts to undergo this mutation further, um, and he he believes himself to be becoming less human. Um, so he decides to run off to Monster Island, or Monster Isle as it's sometimes called, which is where the Mole Man and his monsters live. Um, we sort of see a little bit of a recap of this in this issue. Um, so he goes off to um, Monster Island. The Fantastic Four have been wondering where he is. They've been looking for him. They come across the pilot who um, flew him there, who eventually spills the beans but says he doesn't want you to go look for him. And then, sure enough, they go and look for him. Uh, and then um, they visit the Mole Man and the Thing, and uh, the Thing says, hey, Mole Man is just trying to get his people a home, um, but uh, you know that there's going to be something like nefarious going on underneath. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of things that I really like about this issue is um, there's the scene where Reed calls the Fantastic Four to tell them that he's found Ben. He shoots a flare, and... Um, Oh yes, this right. mimics the very beginning of Fantastic Four number one, right? Uh, where you know Sue goes invisible and has to go through the crowd and pushes people out of the way, and Johnny flames on in the middle of the street, and yeah, um, it it is just uh, very reminiscent. And then he's wearing his brown suit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's wearing his brown suit. Reed is. Um, so that's uh, that was kind of a nice nod, because this is the twenty fifth anniversary issue of of the Fantastic Four, but also of the Marvel Universe. Uh, the, it's nice that uh, that they threw that in there. Um, one of the things about having so many artists in this book is that there are there, you get little inconsistencies. So I just noticed that um, the thing is wearing these glasses, the uh, mole man glasses, the mole man glasses throughout the entire issue because his eyes are now adjusted to being in the dark, and so when he's in the light, he needs to wear these these special glasses. Um, when Mar the 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 uh, drawings that the pages that Mark Silvestri does, he forgot to put the glasses on <laughs> on the thing. So there's about ten pages where he doesn't have the glasses, and then all of a sudden, when it switches over to Jerry Ordway, um, he's got the glasses again, and then he immediately takes off the glasses and, <laughs> and smashes them or something like that. So, and it, you can see that on page 54, no glasses. Page 55, right, the very first panel, the glasses are back. So yeah, um, no editor uh, spotted that mistake, I guess. I didn't spot that. One of the best conversations in this big issue is when She-Hulk is talking to Wyatt Wingfoot. Mm -hmm. There are a couple um, in at this time, uh, but she really feels like she's not part of the family. And you talked about how this is a family-driven book, and it's mm -hmm. all about that. And even though she's been with the Fantastic Four for a while now, with about two years real time, um, she still feels like an outsider and feels like she hasn't quite 
fit in the same way that Ben fits in. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, she does eventually get there. But I think at this point in time, that has to do with the fact that there's so much other stuff, other family drama going on with Ben having left. And um, actually, I wanted to mention this anyway, because uh, uh, Ben's attitude in this, he's he's often kind of been down on himself. But in this particular issue, he really seems um, uh, depressed. He's hit rock bottom. <laughs> rock bottom. <laughs> Unintended. Oh, yes. Um, and... The reason for this is like if you like I said, there's a lot that's happened in the last couple of years, and um, if you look into that, then it's no wonder he's like this. Um, after coming back from uh, Battle World, well, first of all, while he's on Battle World, he falls in love with um, uh, this lady named Tariana, and um, at at the end of his time in Battle World, um, Battle World is going to be destroyed, and he has to leave her. And and so he's just, like, lost this love of his life um, who's going to die when Battle World explodes. He comes back, and he kind of expects to, you know, rejoin the team and, and uh, pick uh, maybe up with get... His, pick with pick up with Alicia. Um, oddly enough, he was trying to break up with her right before he left, but, uh, you know, hope to pick up with her. But she's now dating Johnny, and they're um, pretty soon to be engaged later on in one of these issues. Um, and... Uh, so there's that. He's been replaced by She-Hulk. And it's... Um, uh, he also finds out that um, Reed has known that his transformation is a psycholo- psychological issue for in comic times about a couple months and never told him. And so all of these things sort of are compounding, um, which leads him to quit the Fantastic Four and, um, and uh, distance himself Um that's when he goes into the wrestling and that's when he begins to mutate. And then so the mutation um, and the fact that um, Sharon Ventura only really likes him because he's not really human, um, that all really compounds uh, to uh, sort of set him up for the uh, his depressive state in this uh, issue. Right. Yeah, well, and not just this issue, but kind of the next four or five issues right which i think one of the things that steve Englehart does really well is um he gets him out of the funk right by making him the leader and giving him something to take his mind off of all of that yeah so i uh, will get to that in a little bit one thing i didn't know about this issue um is that this is actually the first appearance of the four freedoms plaza which is their new headquarters oh yeah that's right um it, it was recently um destroyed by um well the baxter building was destroyed well the baxter the baxter building was destroyed their headquarters was destroyed by christoph bernard um who is dr doom's adoptive son we'll talk about him later as well yep you know there's all these things that are going on that you um that sort of come up and some of them are addressed but we'll talk about them more later um but yeah and so over the last few issues um leading up to this volume mr fantastic has been um designing this new bigger building and you see it um, being constructed, but this is exactly the first time that you actually see it completed. Like with the four design on the top? With the four design yeah. on the top, yeah. One thing I didn't know, but uh, through research for this, um, I discovered is that it was de- uh, named after Franklin Roosevelt's World War II speech, and the four freedoms are the freedom of speech, uh, worship, and the freedom from want and fear. Huh. There you go. Yeah. Let's move on to issue number 297. This one's called Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. 
<laughs> this one is um, kind of the first. This is the, the first one by Roger Stern in this transitional period. Um, I feel like Roger is just kind of he he's just kind of tying up a lot of the the plot lines that were started by John Byrne that he that Byrne didn't really get to finish. Um, the wedding coming up being the biggest one of those plot lines. Um, but uh, yeah, this one I got kind of bored with this one, this issue, and the next one. It was a really weird story. Yeah, so just really briefly, um, I guess on s- some other quadrant of the of the galaxy <laughs> or the universe, yeah. um, this alien is siphoning power through a, a black hole or a wormhole from our sun yes and rediscovers this yeah. and it's going to kill our sun which means that we're all going to die right and so he sets off to find out where the source of this yeah this uh power is and coming the, from. the reason he's he's siphoning it is because he and his brother are are like at a huge civil war on this planet right and um it's powering his like special suit kind of like an iron man suit kind of thing yeah um and so and those bad guys are called umbra and jagger or jogger two A's jogger yeah uh and so fantastic four go to to uh to take care of take out this satellite that's siphoning power they do it they don't have any clue about this civil war that's going on right. and um but then through the course of whatever reed does to uh to stop this power um the the two brothers are somehow swept up in this vortex brought to our side of the universe and they're merged um, in and one they're, body they're merged into one body and so that's we can talk about these two issues together i think because yeah. um because it's just one kind of two-part story and so yeah they um <laughs> the guy um i guess just uh, attaches himself to the ship comes back to earth and and they have a big fight um there's not a whole lot a whole lot more than that no pretty pretty unremarkable yeah, and so we have some art here by John and Sal Busema, their brothers. Uh, I think that John did the the layouts and mm-hmm. um, and and Sal kind of finished up the art. Yeah, what's what I do appreciate is how each of the brothers had very different facial hair, and then when they are in the merged body, it has like all the facial hair yeah. together. Yeah, <laughs> so you can tell that that. Yeah, their distinct personalities are merged right. together. Yeah, um, they're in two ninety eight. There is uh, one mention. Uh, Franklin mentions a wedding, and it's um, people might want to know that that's a reference to the wedding of Crystal and Quicksilver in Fantastic Four one fifty. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, also uh, in two ninety seven, the thing is seen wearing a full uh, bodysuit and a helmet. Yeah. And that helmet. This is the first appearance of that helmet. It's uh, something that he. Um, later not on, the first appearance. No, wasn't that? It was in like Fantastic <clears throat> Four number two. Was when he. Oh, got his, sorry, you're right. This, it's from his original original you're costume, right. yes. which he gave up like after one issue because he. Right. He looked. Yeah, but um, yeah. So this is sort of the 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 I guess maybe the first modern appearance of it. Right. And um, it comes back from time to time. It does. And and uh, in, later on in this one, he's even wondering if he should wear it more, um, but uh, he does later on after wolverine cuts his face up. yeah yeah he needs to wear for actual protection yeah it always yeah it's always weird it's like he's made of rock he doesn't need a helmet like if you whack him with a crowbar nothing's gonna happen the helmet's gonna just be pointless right but it was mostly to hide his face so is this the issue where johnny proposes 
No. Or is that was that in the? I made a note about that. Oh, sorry. Yes. So two ninety seven is where um, uh, Johnny proposes, but we didn't realize it. Uh, we didn't remember it because it's such a a fast thing. It's, it's sort of like a uh, hey, you you want to get married? <laughs> right. And um, the unfortunate thing is Ben happens to be in earshot um, when when it all happens. Right. So. Uh, that just kind of further pushes him into a little bit of depression there. Yeah. He's still, I would say he's still not fully recovered from, um, the stuff from the previous issue. Yeah. And he real and he really feels it because, um, he looks around and, and, you know, she Hulk has Wyatt. Right. Um, Johnny has Alicia and Reed and Sue have each other and Franklin. And he is very much alone. He's the so seventh wheel, even though he's part of this family and he's returned. And I think there's a hope that he, kind of gets to go back to the life he had before mm-hmm. um being part of a family unit it's obvious that you know things have changed and and he is definitely kind of the third fourth fifth or sixth wheel yeah. here and and it's one thing to uh to know that your you know ex-girlfriend that you still love is dating somebody else but then to hear that they're like engaged and going to be married that's like yeah that's very different yeah it, it's kind of like oh i guess this is actually for real right Okay, we can move on to issue number 299. This one's called The Best Man. Um, and that's a, a double meaning in this title um, because this issue deals with a couple of different themes. Um, this is the issue where Johnny asks Ben to be the best man at his wedding. Um, and of course, because of everything that's going on, Ben does not react favorably to the suggestion or to the invitation. Of course. Yeah. For sure. And so this issue deals with Ben. It's a it's a real character building issue where Ben and um, Ben and She-Hulk kind of have a little sit down. And I think She-Hulk's a good person to talk to him in, in this case because she's also been mutated. Um, not in an ugly way like Ben, but in a way that makes her stand out and be, and be a little bit different. Um, so they have a heart to heart. But also she realizes that he really just needs to punch something. Right. And and she can take it. Yeah, and so he, he kind of um she kind of goads him into it a little bit mm-hmm. um to to um lose his temper and so they take it outside to a, an abandoned building and and just go at it and they have a, a great fight um where the the building just totally comes down. And I, it it was just the kind of release that Ben needed in order to to calm down a little bit. The bar that they go to is called Al's Bar. And it actually reminds me a lot of Al's Diner from Reboot. Oh, yeah. Well, Al's Bar is probably... I wonder if that's a reference to Al Milgram, yeah. yeah. I thought it was really weird in this issue that they recap what happens three issues ago. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. But that's that's probably part of the whole transition kind of like, oh, we just need a little bit of filler here. There's actually a lot of filler. There's, yeah. It's not just what happened three issues ago, but there's um, going back to like Fantastic Four, I think number seven, where they first meet the Puppet Master. Um, there's um, there's a recap there that takes up two pages. There's a recap of um, just kind of the, the battles he's had over time with the Nihilus and mm-hmm. um, Absorbing Man. Um, the, the wrestling. The, yeah, there's a, there's a recap about the wrestling, which I think is probably the most helpful recap out of all of them here, yeah. just because it brings it up to speed and gives a little foreshadow of Miss Marvel, which Roger Stern didn't know that Miss Marvel was going to be used at the time. But right. And helps and, us out. And they, they do mention the thing's further mutation, 
but even in uh, 296, where you see him with the Mole Man, he seems fine. And so he mentions that he's mutated, but there's no actual um, address of like how he stopped mutating or was cured of that or anything, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, there's also a really nice scene between Human Torch and Spider-Man who have had a, a great relationship mm-hmm. um, over the years. Um, Spider-Man in his black costume. Yeah, so the double meaning in the title is just not only just uh, the best man as in Johnny wants him to be the best man, but he's trying to figure out the thing himself is how to is trying to figure out how to be a better man than he has been. Yeah, especially considering um, all the things going on around him. Yeah, yeah, and he thinks that he can be the best out of you know all of the people in the Fantastic Four. Okay. Number 300, Dearly Beloved. This is the big issue here. Um, And it starts off with Johnny at the Daily Bugle, mad at uh, Robbie. At this period, Jonah is not in charge of the Bugle. I was going to ask about that. Um, Yeah, he, uh, Thomas Fireheart has bought bought the the Bugle and and ousted J. Jonah Jameson as a a favor to Spider-Man in order to, because Spider-Man helped him out. So he, as a, as a, uh, kind of to repay the debt, he is taking out a thorn in Spider-Man's side, which right. is Jameson, who's always ragging on him. Mm-hmm. So Robbie is in charge. He's editor-in-chief here of the Daily Bugle. And they got a tip that um, Johnny and Alicia are going to be married, and so he prints it, and Johnny gets really mad. And I think that it's uh, it's important because um, Johnny especially remembers Reed and Sue's wedding, yeah. which all of the villains attacked that mm-hmm. in that wedding so he w- doesn't want that to happen here which is especially odd because out of all four of them he's the one that's always wanted the most publicity yeah that's true yeah the hot shot so overall this is a kind of a neat issue um i i always appreciate the wedding issues it's hard to to do these well um because there's like you don't want to make it too sweet and sappy and right. like it's still a comic book so do we want action in there and mm-hmm. but do you want it to be an uninterrupted wedding or do you want all this drama yeah and you think of some of the big weddings um like this one like lois and clark like um peter and mary peter jane. mary jane um yeah and and they're they're really well done yeah well and i think in terms uh, of history this gotten gene as well oh yeah of course in terms of history, this wedding is always forgotten because yeah. Johnny and Alicia are just not fated to be together. Right. That, that couple they're not, that... They're not famous enough. Like, I really like this issue because there's a little bit of closure for Ben. He has a good conversation with Alicia and, you know, kind of says his goodbyes. I thought it was really touching and a really great way to uh, kind of, you know, for Ben to, to let go. Um, unfortunately, Steve, when he starts writing the book, doesn't let it go at all. Yeah. So he just kind of keeps on, he keeps on, uh, on I beating mean, himself up about it. I mean, it. he handles it well. Steve writes it, I think, really well. But um, but it came after yeah. this issue where he has a really good kind of, he gets well, some closure in there. Yeah, but at the same time, um, it is brought back up even before Steve takes over, I think, um, in... Um, when, when did he take over? 304? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, but um, in, in even the next couple issues, and in the uh, the Fantastic Four X Men crossover, um, you see you see some of these uh, um, same types of uh, feelings and comments coming up from Ben. Right. Yeah, like like it is it is important for closure, but it does still take a while, even after closure, for that sort of healing process to to continue and right. to like be okay to hang around them and stuff like that. He visits the Yancey Street gang here. Oh, or yeah. rather, he visits Yancey Street, and the Yancey Street gang visits him. And what's interesting is um, they have this rivalry going on. Um, ben Grimm grew up um, in Yancey, on Yancey Street and was part of the Yancey Street gang, and, and he quit. And so they've always sort of bugged him, especially after he became the thing, became famous. They bugged him about this. And so they always play pranks on him. But this time, they actually do something really nice for him um, because... As much as they like to play pranks on him and bug him, you know, they actually really like him. Yeah, and Doom does the same thing too. Yeah. He um I mean not that he really likes them, but he sends them he, respects he sends them flowers. It, and yeah, as a sign of a truce. Yeah. He says, Until these flowers wither and die, I, <laughs> Which I won't like bother you guys. Three days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's just a nice sentiment. Yeah. So uh, Doom is a he's he's a classy guy even though he's a maniacal evil overlord. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also in this one, we see the puppet master and the mad thinker team up, um, which is, it's not the first time that's happened, but they actually team up quite a bit over the years, which is kind of an interesting pairing. Um, you would think that someone like the mad thinker um, wouldn't need the help of somebody like the puppet master um, because he's so much smarter. And you wouldn't think that, um, the puppet master um, would want to team up with somebody who is so arrogant and condescending uh, <laughs> just because of his own personality, but they do. Right. The Mad Thinker has also has revealed that he's a robot in like, he, it's just an Android ver- Android version of himself. Yeah, he's actually here. in jail and he, he stays in jail for a long time, which is a smart thing on his part. Yeah. But he somehow has learned how to transfer his mind by thought by thinking really hard about it yeah, uh, across great distances into these robot bodies. And if he can do that, if he's building all of these robots, then why does, yeah, why does he need the puppet master? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. There's also a mention of, uh, quote, Brian and the boys for a concert, which I believe would be a reference to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah. I think so. Probably. Uh, and then there's, um, who's the artist on this one? Is that, it's uh, still John and Sal. John, John and Sal. Yep. There's one panel where um, the puppet master has controlled Franklin to find out where the wedding is taking place. And there's just this one panel of Franklin with this really evil look on his face. And the next panel is the puppet master with a very similar evil look. And I just think that it's, it's great because you're like oh, this clearly is not Franklin in control here. This is very clearly the puppet master is controlling him. Right. Okay, we're going to move on to issue number 301. This one's called Dark Dreams. Um, this is a um, Roger Stern plot with uh, Tom DeFalco script um, with art by John and Sal. This one is really about Franklin. Mad Thinker teams up with the wizard in order to try and uh, attack the Fantastic Four by kidnapping... Uh, Franklin and Ben they get he gets both of them um but then Franklin has this new power that he's discovered where he can um he when he's asleep he can he can 
his his essence, I guess, can travel outside of his body and he can yeah. travel to places. Yeah. So um, Franklin Richards is a mutant. He was born with powers. Um, and his powers are reality warping psionic abilities. Basically, like if he thinks it, it will happen or it can become real. Um, now, normally mutants, their powers don't come, uh, don't emerge until adolescence, but um, they were in the negative zone and Annihilus awoke his mutant abilities um, and it granted Franklin like full use of all of his powers, essentially making him like a cosmic being. Not all of his powers, well, um, just uh, some of them, like, and more and more are revealed over time. Yeah. Um, but eventually he becomes, uh, he, uh, he becomes too powerful. And, um, yeah. after a talk with, um, uh, with Reed, uh, he realizes that he shouldn't have these abilities cause he's not old enough to like use them properly. And so he uses his own powers to put like, um, blocks, mental blocks in so that he cannot use his powers. And it's at this point here, um, in issue 301 that there's or around now that they're starting to sort of break down and his powers are sort of starting to leak through so he gets visions of the future in his dreams and he also can like psychically project himself um to wherever he wants and um he, these these powers are developed in power pack yeah this is where they come out and so he and uh franklin spends a lot of time with power pack to the point where he has these powers and Reed and Sue don't even know anything about right. them. And so it's in um, this issue here that we first find uh, that Reed and Sue first find out about them. About his about his about his projection. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a uh, it just goes to show how powerful he really is. Like um, Doctor Strange, you know, those types of people, they can have their little astral projections, um, Professor X as well, but you always see them sort of start from their body and travel to a place and uh franklin just appears there and it's not like just in the same city this is across you know the galaxy yeah do you have anything more you want to say about that issue yeah there's a really interesting interaction between the mad thinker and the wizard um in which the wizard said he doesn't care about who gets hurt um, the only thing that matters is revenge and the mad thinker is like okay well I, w I won't hurt a child therefore we're not working together anymore but then um, but then the uh, wizard goes and creates a knockout gas that's strong enough to knock out the thing but not harm Franklin now first of all how did he know that they were going to be together like right. why would you make a gas that has that you know it's, it's not going to hurt the child well if you're intending it for the thing, then you'd probably use it when the thing's alone. You wouldn't necessarily anticipate that he's going to be with a child. Right. <laughs> but then second of all, it's like, well, you just got finished saying you don't care who gets hurt. You want to get the Fantastic Four. Um, yet you went through the trouble to make the gas not hurt the child. And that's it, the interesting thing is that, um, or one of the interesting things is that um, with the Mad Thinker not wanting to hurt a child, that's something you don't normally see in the villains. They may not want to hurt the children um but they won't necessarily actually like flat out say it i'm not gonna hurt children um it's something that that you only really see in say like flashes rogues you know um this is kind of a game to us we know that there are rules we're gonna follow our our moral code and it's just we're gonna fight the hero and steal things and like that's it hmm. and so that um 
yeah and so it's interesting to hear the mad thinkers say you know i've got my own moral code it's i can attack them but i'm not gonna hurt the kid right this is also the first issue with no she hulk Hmm. she's out of the team and the the thing i remember when i read this a long time ago and it and still with this volume there's no goodbye for she hulk right she is just out of there Mm mm-hmm it's like there's no hey thanks for helping out while Ben was gone or yeah. you know no, no contemplating oh I guess I need to leave because 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 Ben's around in fact Wyatt is in this issue uh, they they he's still living there or something reading a magazine um, so is she Hulk still there I don't know maybe I wonder if they address that in an Avengers issue or something they must because she does go from here to the Avengers. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not in this volume, and I haven't read that Avengers issue if it, if it exists. So she's yeah, just kind of it was just weird that she's just not there anymore. Okay, um, uh, it's also interesting that um, that the wizard uh, when Sue questions the wizard about um, where Franklin is, he said um, he's beyond even your help now. And, you know, you get the sense that he's trying to imply that um, that he's dead, um, which is definitely not the case. But I think that really what he's doing is referring to the magnitude of Franklin's powers. And because, um, I mean, he knows um, uh, through the issue, he sort of discovered a little bit about what Franklin does and what yeah. you know, he can do. And I think he's sort of saying, like, well, he's going to be a handful and you don't even know the half of it. Let's move on to issue 302. Uh, do you want to introduce this one? Yeah, this one is um, Johnny and Alicia's honeymoon. And um, they go away to, and I don't remember exactly where it is here, um, upstate New York. <laughs> um, the, and, the most romantic place on earth. That's right. Um, and they're just going to go away to um, a friend's cabin in a little uh, town in the countryside and just enjoy their time there. And on their way, they get stopped by a military blockade, and um, he Johnny sort of um, freaks out about it because it's interrupting his honeymoon. Who don't you know who I am and all that? And then they let him through. And then when they get to the town, they find out that um, people have been mysteriously vanishing, and then they'll show up like weeks later, and they don't know where they've been and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's uh it's kind of a nice just a mystery issue. It's it's obviously another just another fill in. It doesn't really have any repercussions um anywhere. Well, that that's true, but at the same time, um going along with the Fantastic Four theme of de- developing relationships and showing the interactions that they have, um it makes sense as a Fantastic Four comic. Um it it, it is definitely out of place uh a little bit uh because it doesn't have um a lot of the same uh, science and adventure because you know Reed's not there and, and all that kind of thing but um, I think it definitely fits the general feel of a Fantastic Four comic right well yeah I mean and you have it's still by Stern and with a script by DeFalco so it's the same as the last issue right the editor for this part is uh, Don Daly and I'm pretty sure that he probably had Steve Englehart lined up by now and Roger Stern has been writing Avengers all of this time so um with just providing the plots for these last few issues and even like, he isn't even on next issue. So, so pretty sure that uh, they're just biding their time right now waiting for Steve Englehart's run to start. 
I thought this was um, a strange issue in, in the way that it was written, in that it seems to have um, like this whole nuclear commentary uh, political kind of thing going on, but also um, toward the end especially, it's got this sort of um, anti-cult feel. Um, something that Craig pointed out when I was talking about Thor, which it, which that takes place kind of at the same time here, um, is that the Chernobyl event just happened ah. just before this book came out. Right. So the whole nuclear issue was very, uh, very present in people's minds mm-hmm. at this time. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, no, kind yeah. of a, just a whatever kind of issue. Yeah. Although it does have some uh, classic human torch poses, which um, I actually haven't seen a lot of in, in uh, this, this collection. The ones where he's like standing legs spread and he's like, uh, has hands together, blasting something. Right. Well, and because uh, Torch hasn't really been featured that heavily in no. the book so far. It's really just kind of focused on the thing. Yeah, this is very much um, the development of the thing coming out of his funk from all of the you know bad things that have happened in his life recently and getting him back to sort of a normal. Yeah, which is surprising. Even though the Torch gets married, the Torch hasn't been a focus in a lot of these issues. Yeah. So, yeah, we get a torch specific issue which is nice but it's kind of just a lackluster issue yeah but that's why that's why i like this um or i think this is a good collection because it actually sort of takes us from the beginning of things funk to the end of it yeah the next issue 303 is called alternatives and this was a this is another just a fill-in this is the very last issue before steve's run starts and they brought back Roy Thomas, who wrote Fantastic Four after Stan Lee left. So he was the, the guy that took over FF. And uh, this is his, at the very end of this issue, it says, Thanks from Roy T to Don D, that's Don Daly, and John Buscema for giving me another crack at the big fella. So this was kind of his, his last time on FF. And it was a, it's like a what-if tale. Yeah. Um... Basically, we have um, Thundra, who is a um, sort of an Amazon warrior from a distant future where um, women are in control and have basically eliminated all men except for some maybe servants or something. Um, They have no need for men. Their science is advanced. Um, They can reproduce without, um, without needing men. Is she basically Wonder Woman? Yeah, kind of, except angrier. Um, so basically, she come, She has visited in the past. Um, they had a little scuffle, and she deems Thing, as, as she says in this issue, uh, someone that she can respect as being almost her equal. <laughs> <laughs> and probably for the same reason that Miss Marvel appreciates Thing is because he doesn't even look like a man, so she doesn't consider him to be... Well, not even that. Like, she's she's very aware that he's uh, a man. And this issue, um, she says that she needs... Um, uh, well, <laughs> needs. Um, she's supposed to have a king who is definitely not over her in, in position, but, um, uh, but apparently she's supposed to have one uh, as she takes control of, of her people. Um, but it's more of a he's on par with her in terms of strength and ability. Yeah. So this is another one of those issues where I was like, I thought Thing kind of let things go and, and he was okay with with his life in that previous issue, in the wedding issue, and then mm-hmm. it comes back and it's like, now we're, we're talking about it again. Yeah. 
But yeah, I think I think this shows that you know he's he's not really over uh, Alicia. It's like like I said uh, earlier, he has addressed it to her, saying you know I'm okay with you being married to him, but that doesn't remove the actual hurt and doesn't mean that he has moved on yet. And so this is where we're seeing this. Um, the thing uh, is trying to move on because Thundra asks him to marry her and yep. he's actually willing to do it. But then both he and she sort of realize that he's still hung up on Alicia. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it's a bizarre story. You know, it's one of those deus ex machina ones where, oh, they just happen to have this technology that will allow him to go and fix this. Right. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, this kind of concludes the first half of this volume. And um, it just, it just feels like it's like, I appreciate the whole kind of arc that the thing's going through, but we've really had kind of just fill in after fill in. Um, It really does feel like they're like James said, they're treading water until someone actually with a, with an actual vision is coming along. And had there been somebody with a vision, like had they gotten, um, Steve Englehart earlier, it's very possible that they would have done something very similar with the thing, but the overall story would be progressing um, a lot faster or or in a more coherent manner. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the next issue is 304, which is the beginning of Steve Englehart's run. Now, this collection puts 304 right here, and then it skips to the Fantastic Four versus X-Men four-issue miniseries and then goes back into Steve Englehart's run. And I understand the placement because the X-Men miniseries has to take place very uh, during a very specific part of FF. It, it, Alicia and Johnny are already married, and they've already had their honeymoon, but Reed and Sue haven't left yet. So it needs to take place, like they haven't even announced that they're going to leave yet, so it needs to take place during this particular issue. Um, but for our purposes, I'd rather talk about Steve Englehart's run together. Okay. So rather than going to 304, let's right. just skip ahead and go to the the Fantastic Four versus X-Men miniseries okay. and talk about that. Now, I'm going to um I'm just going to play a little clip here because I got the chance to talk to John Bogdanov about uh about this miniseries and his involvement what in it an, and writing uh, it. Awesome experience that was. I think I'm, I it required a lot of fill-ins on Power Pack to do it, but um Weezy encouraged me to do it. Uh, um, Carl encouraged me to do it. Uh, Mike Carlin was the editor, and Chris Claremont was the writer. How could I not do it? Yeah, so you know? did they ask you? They came to you? Uh, yeah, no, they invited me. Uh, they invited me to do it. And um, it, was, uh, it was amazing. Um, first of all, I mean... It was my introduction to Mike Carlin, which shaped my career. Yeah, and uh, it was Fantastic Four, which, which, uh, power pack aside, Fantastic Four is my favorite Marvel uh, book. I, I touched on both sets of characters, the X Men and the Fantastic Four, uh, in the context of Power Pack. Right. But to get to work with Chris and to get to work with Mike and to get to work with both of those groups was irresistible, and and. Uh, uh, Chris was, I mean, you know, Chris and the Simonsons are tight. They're, 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 
Chris is part of the Simonson universe, or Simonson is part of their universe, or whatever. But they're 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 part of that same uh, group, and so they were pals. And Chris uh, is such a wonderful writer, and it was really apparent early on in the run that he was writing for me. He'd obviously seen my power pack stuff and uh uh you know he knew that i do the sentimental stuff really well and and that uh this stuff with a lot of feeling and that i really liked ben Grimm, and and so he, and he was throwing stuff at me that was like designed for me uh and that doesn't all that doesn't always happen that's 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 something peculiar about the uh about the Marvel method uh, is that sometimes the writer will write for the artist, write for the artist's strengths, right? Uh, yeah. And that's and that's really what happened with with Fantastic Four with the X Men. Right, I really appreciated his explanation of the Marvel process. Right, yeah, because I like I'd heard the term before and I didn't really know what it was, but like hearing that like makes a lot of sense and you can see the difference in comics these days for sure yeah it's full script and you can even see the difference when comparing to dc comics of this era mm. as well because they did yeah. full script they didn't yeah. do it this way but i think it allows more um dynamic art in um in each page because the artist can sort of des- uh, decide what they want to do now back then it was very much still the uh, the blocky like six panel page or something like that and there wasn't a lot of deviation from that everything's still in boxes that de- that depends on the artist well it depends on the artist i guess yeah um but uh when the artist knows just what happens on the page and they can sort of draw whatever they want it's very different from saying in this panel this is what happens and then they have to draw that right yeah it gives a different meaning to penciler yeah because he's not just a penciler yeah. He is a storyteller. So when I say this guy's a great storyteller, like mm-hmm. he actually is in charge of the flow of the page. Right. So yeah, the the writer will give them him a rough breakdown of what happens on the page, but it's the artist is uh, in charge of actually conveying how many panels it takes to tell that mm-hmm. that part of the story. So yeah, and and John Bogdanov does a good job. He really does. So briefly, I mentioned that this uh this miniseries spins pretty much directly out of Mutant Massacre. I mentioned that earlier. Um, The Morlocks have uh, been... A lot of them have been killed. And the Power Pack spent a lot of time with the Morlocks. They appear in a lot of the issues. And they make good friends with Leech and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and people. And so... It makes also makes sense that Franklin is involved in this story too, because Franklin yeah. had a relationship with with those. Yeah, it also kind of makes sense because um, uh, that they hang out with the Morlocks because children just don't seem to pay attention to some of these things that adults are really concerned about, like appearance. So the Morlocks are all hidden because you know they're ugly. They're the mutants that don't really fit in society because of their appearance. Right, and kids just don't think about that. They're just like, hey, these are people too. The other thing to note is that Louise Simonson was writing Power Pack and X-Factor and I think New Mutants hmm. at this time as well. So, and majority of Mutant Massacre took place during in those three books as well as Chris Claremont's X-Men. Right. So you have a cohesive universe kind of within those little books there, which is why Power Pack shows up so much. Right. Um, because Louise Simonson is writing a few X-Books as well. So the biggest ramifications from Mutant Massacre, um, well, the biggest one as far as the X-Men is concerned is that Kitty Pride is stuck now in her 
like in a fa- in a permanent phasing yeah. state. So kind of like how um, Cyclops uh, had some brain damage when he fell out of the plane and he can't control his optic blasts. In this case, um, Kitty has been um, uh, damaged somehow, um, such that she can't control her ability to phase. And I guess their explanation for her phasing is her molecules spread apart so they can go in between all the other molecules of whatever she's phasing through. Yep. And so now they're just spreading apart without any stopping. Yeah, and they're just going further and further and further apart, and eventually she'll just disperse. Right. And so they have her in a little um, glass bubble type thing to help contain her. Um, but she can't talk because she's at the point where you can kind of see her, but her throat isn't solid enough to actually produce sound. I thought that um, uh, the art in this wa- uh, was was really good, especially um, the drawings of uh, of Kitty uh, in her sort of ghost form. Yeah, and there's a lot of light dark contrast that goes on um and the shading is really good too yeah yeah it it is he does a good job um and um yeah so they the we're going to kind of talk we're not going to break this one down issue by issue i don't think we'll kind of talk about it as a whole so the premise is that they reach out to reed richards to see if he can lend his scientific brain to help kitty he is in a state of kind of self-doubt because they've uncovered this journal that Reed wrote way back when um, he uh, was in college. Uh, when, when, yeah, when he was in college. And it reveals that he actually knew that the cosmic rays were going to hurt the FF and change them. And it was intentional that he sent them into space because he wanted to see what was going to happen. Well, not just that he knew that um, it was going to change them. Um Oh, but, but he, he designed he his designed ship the ship to gather to, the cosmic rays. Yeah, to allow yeah. the change. Yeah, so it was very intentional. He wasn't going to tell them, but he was intentionally going to change them. And yeah. so he, um, the reasoning was, you see this growth of the number of mutants and superhumans, and so he said, well, you need somebody to be the uh, positive role model for them, um, so that they choose the side of good instead of the side of evil. And he, uh, the Fantastic Four was going to be them that yeah. that role model. Which, oddly enough, they do become, kind of. Uh, and so, at that point, Reed says, no, he's not going to help. And Dr. Doom steps in and says, well, I can help. Uh, and so, they, the um, FF try to stop the X-Men from ha- getting Doom to, to help him out and stuff. So, they have a bunch of, uh, of, of um, sort of fights. This is a classic, we're going to pair our heroes against each other kind of thing. One of, this is probably one of the earlier instances of that. And it felt more natural than the typical, we think you're villains, um, so we're going to fight you. Oh, we had a misunderstanding, let's team up and fight the actual bad guy. It felt, it was a, it was a different sort of misunderstanding. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do think, however, though, that the um, characterization of Reed is a little off for this time. Um, he definitely goes through, I mean, Reed and Sue. Um, Reed definitely goes through these periods of... Um, sort of being detached and disinterested and focused on his science. Um, he also does go through these periods of uh, self-doubt, but he wasn't at that point um, in this era. Uh, I think that's pretty evident through the rest of this book. Right. Um, and so it's odd that they would choose to put him in that position. I mean, that it makes the story go, right? But um, it, makes, it seems like odd that they would put him back there. 
um, for for this miniseries. Well, I think that's kind of why they had him uh, find the journal, because that's kind of the catalyst for right. him withdrawing well, into his science. For, for well, okay, I guess. Well, no, at the beginning he's um, withdrawn into his science even before that, because he he really he dis he outright dismisses Franklin so that he can work on his stuff. He tells Susan, "Hey, deal with the kids so I can keep working." Yeah, he kind of is always like that. No, not not at this point, because at this point in the series, um, he has just come off of, hey, let's move our family away. Let's not do science. Let's move our family away to Connecticut um, to raise them. And then shortly after this, he does the same thing. Let's move away from the Fantastic Four um, in order to um, have a normal life and not do all this crazy right. stuff. Um and so he, like I said, he definitely does have these periods, but this was not one of them. It also puts him back as a pipe smoker, which he hasn't done in a while. Yeah. And it uh, very much has an emphasis on Sue as the um, matron of the family doing the, she's wearing her handkerchief and sorting through old boxes and sorting and cleaning. And she's the one who has to deal with the kid, sort of, right? Right, yeah. We do get a hint of the her power, though. Yes. the end here right and so um i think chris claremont is um uh has sort of a, a good idea of of what she can do because previously she has been known as invisible girl and all she could really do was turn invisible yeah and make her own personal force field right very recently in 85 somewhere um 1985 uh they fight psycho man this is shortly after um she lost the baby and Psycho Man sort of plays on all of these emotions that she has, and that develops the malice personality. Right. Um, they conquer it, but she recognizes that she sort of lost some of her innocence, and that's when she changes her name to Invisible Woman. Um, also at that time, through that um, malice personality, she uh, discovers that she has the ability to create force objects and force fields that are not around her, that are around other things um, or different shapes. And we don't really see that in this collection. Right. Except occasionally she does um, force fields around other people. She makes a little chair for Franklin to ride on or the thing to sit in. Um, this is a very weird version of X-Men. If you're not familiar with X-Men and you're reading this it, and you only really know like the movies or the cartoon, it, mm -hmm. it's kind of bizarre. Magneto's the leader and you have a very, a very 80s kind of punk looking X-Men. And they're none of the regular characters that you would think because, um, first of all, a lot of them have gone to, uh, the, the, the five core have gone to X-Factor. Yep. Um, secondly, a lot of the well-known ones um, are injured from the uh, mutant massacre. Right. And yeah, it's also yeah. a period of transition for that team in general, as we find out. Right. And so, like, Psylocke hasn't, she doesn't have her other body that right. she eventually she still, moves into. She's still she's white still and British. British. Yep. Uh, long shots there and... Um, and Dazzler. And Dazzler, yeah, they're kind of, they just pop up every once in a while. And yeah. Havoc, too, he's yeah. kind of a in-and-out kind of guy. Yeah, so oddly enough, she treats Havoc like the new guy um, because he's sort of joining the team again. Uh, but Rogue has sort of been there around for a little while and, and she's kind of like, I don't need your help. You're not on the team yet. I can handle this. Right. But Havoc was on the team before. Oh, yeah. Like no. in the 70s, right? Right, yeah. right. From Giant Size X-Men. But he, yeah. had, he had been off the team for a while and right. he's coming back now because they're a little shorthanded. So this also spins out of power pack because we explore franklin's powers a little bit more as well right and uh and dr doom knows about franklin um oh no 
Doctor Doom kind of figures out a lot about Franklin through this miniseries, which plays up, which plays uh, ahead in the Fantastic Four annual that's coming up in right. this collection too. I, I'm going to play a little clip about John talking about what it's like to draw all of these different characters all together, like so many different characters in one book. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, there's a, there was a saying in Marvel of those days: team books kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and. Um, that's there. There's something to that because I, I'm not able to treat uh, treat characters as stock characters or action figures. I, in order to function at all, in order to draw them at all, I have to get into them and invest in them. And so the the challenge with a the challenge with with a team book is just so many people, so many feelings, hmm. so many characters. So many heads to, to get inside that uh, that in a very real sense, it can be emotionally exhausting. Yeah, because you're switching from I guess I'm sort of method in the way I draw. You're switching from you know Logan's state of mind to Franklin's state of mind, Pride's <laughs> state of mind, to Victor Von Doom's state of mind. You know, to Ben yeah, Grimm's state yeah. of mind, and some are easier fits than others. You know, uh, like like. I have no trouble snapping into Ben Grimm. I have no trouble snapping into into Doctor Doom. You know, uh, uh, I have uh, uh, no trouble snapping into Franklin. I have a little more trouble snapping into Logan in a very real way. I mean, I love the character, but but uh, but he. It took me a while. It took me longer to get Wolverine. Okay, there's a little bit of an Easter egg that I want to share in here. Um, in the first issue. When Franklin wakes up from his nightmare right at the beginning, he's in his bedroom. Because this is the artist from Power Pack, we have the exact same bedroom that we see in Power Pack. And the, the Easter eggs here is you get to see Coffee, who is um, his little alien pony friend from uh, from Power Pack. When the Kaimelon. The Kaimelon, yep. And then we have Friday, which is their uh, sentient ship that they fly around in and uh, and a little throwback to the thing series when he was a wrestler fighting in the arena the un- unlimited fighting class federation something like that yep and on the his nightstand he has um uh, a, a a family picture from the power family as well as fantastic four with she hulk and the picture of jarvis because he stayed with jarvis while right. uh, fa- while reed and sue were out and um, and a copy of the saggy baggy elephant on his shelf which which is addressed later on which is addressed later on exactly (laughs) so there are a lot of that's a little cool panel there that's on page 263 Mm -hmm. for those of you who want to see it the the theme of this whole book is sort of um self-doubt and uh, um self-worth right and a lot of uh introspective existentialism i guess yeah and chris claremont does a great job of of writing this um and and explaining what all the characters are thinking and feeling at the time maybe a little bit too much (laughs) (laughs) but sometimes it seems like maybe he's just inventing problems where there weren't any in order to get some drama sometimes like when katie tries to kill herself no you know i kind of think that that's um, that makes sense because she sees that they're all fighting over her and she's already sort of feeling like there's no hope. But um, some of the other stuff, like Johnny fires at Wolverine and Storm falls in the way and all of a sudden he's like, oh man, my powers are so dangerous. I don't know if I can ever use them again. I hurt somebody and I didn't mean to, except they were fighting. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That that was um that did bum them out quite a bit. Yeah. And it's like, well, you've burned people in the past. Yeah. It just uh, some something seemed like this is coming out of nowhere just to create drama. Yeah. Well, and to a certain extent, that's kind of what has to happen when you have two heroes, uh, hero teams fighting each other. Like, you're going to have to create that drama where there normally wouldn't be any. Right. But, you know, I think the book did that. Uh, the Yeah, the book did that enough. So in this issue, She-Hulk joins the FF for the battle. Right. She comes back and just, and I think they even ask her, well, what are you doing here? Yeah. A couple times they're sort of like, oh, are, um, you're coming along. She's like, yeah, I, you know, I was there when it first happened. I'm just going to see this through to the end. But she does make reference to the fact that she is an Avenger now. Yeah. And that's the only way we know that she's not on the FF anymore because yeah. she otherwise just disappears. Yeah. Um, another quick clip to, to play, since we didn't get any clips in the first half of this episode. <laughs> um, another quick clip is um, is John Bogdanov talking about how Franklin Richards is pretty much his son. I had a strong affinity for Franklin because very early on, I started modeling him after, after Kal-El. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Franklin in the in in, his, in the comic books is basically uh, the way I drew him. He's basically a portrait of of our son at that age. Um, so yeah, I, I was I felt pretty personal about about uh, Franklin, and you know, also you have to you have to understand that that at that age, uh, Kalel was unusually articulate, and he had pretty much charmed everybody. Uh, to uh, you know, in the, in, in the in the business, he got he got verbal very early. So that by the time yeah. uh, uh, by the time that Chris was writing Franklin for Fantastic Four versus the X Men, uh, I really think I really think that he was writing a little of Kalala in there. Speaking of Easter eggs, um, I know as a teacher, uh, a high school teacher. There are a lot of young people that won't get this because they actually haven't seen very many old movies. But um, Kitty sings a little song uh, to herself about being 15 and maybe not even seeing 16. Right. And that's a reference to The Sound of Music. Uh, I am 16 going on 17. Right. Which you don't get. Like, it has little music notes, but you don't get that because you don't hear it. They mention uh, Hammerstein. Like I said, a lot of uh, younger people actually haven't seen Sound of Music. That's a shame. It's a good one. I know. Um, also, I really, really liked the relief of the bar staff when Ben leaves the bar <laughs> yeah. after he's been drinking there all day. <laughs> well, especially because we came off of that issue at two ninety nine, where they, right. where She Hulk and Ben yeah. start their fight in a bar. Yeah, and this is a different bar, but I'm yeah. sure word got around. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and this is the corner of this is on Yancey Street as well. This Yancey Street bar, so they're well aware who the thing is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now. One thing that kind of confused me, um, and maybe I haven't read enough Power Pack to know this, but uh, how was Lockheed able to lick Franklin because he was in his ghost form for all of that? Is he able to solidify himself? No, he's not. Maybe that's just a mistake. Yeah. Are you, are you sure he was actually not there at the time? Is, yes. is this at the end? It's an issue for when he sort of first pops up again uh, to Kitty. Lockheed's there and Lockheed... Um, sort of uh, recognizes him and gives him a big lick. And then Franklin wipes all the gross stuff off his face. Oh, yeah. And he, like, and he smells them, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, I don't know, because he's not supposed to be solid. He's supposed to be an astral projection. Right. 
He also, um, I mean, he, even as an astral projection, he can like sit down by the glass and like press or seemingly press himself up against the glass. But then you see like the hand is actually causing pressure on the glass. Right. And if he were just an astral projection, he could go inside the glass. Oh, yeah. He so, could. Yeah, I don't know. So it's like sometimes they remember that and sometimes they don't. So that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure. Yeah. My other question about the art is, why does everybody end up naked in the series at some point? <laughs> like Sex cells. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> uh, right at the beginning, She-Hulk is uh, trying to help uh, a burning, falling down building, and her clothes are basically gone by the end. Um, there's one point where Human Torch is flying around, and he lands back in, his, um, in Alicia's apartment, but he's not wearing clothes, so he's just flying around naked. Um, uh, there's well, one and part Kitty's where, naked the entire yeah, well, time exactly, in, yep. in the tubes. Yep. And that's sort of never addressed why, like, there's this, what, six, seven, eight-year-old kid by this naked teenager girl. Right. <laughs> and um, also, who was it, Rogue? Rogue. Gets after, blasted and, yeah. No, after she takes the thing's powers, right, yeah. she busts out of all right. of her clothes. And, yeah, exactly. So and when then, she goes back to normal, she's naked too. Right, exactly. So that's kind of weird. <laughs> um, and then also Magneto's daughter is mentioned. Um, Magneto's daughter, Anya. And I don't know anything about her. Do we ever like learn more about her yeah i think she's just kind of like in a couple issues or something and then never appears again mm -hmm. uh, well let's move on then and i guess track back a little bit um in this volume to issue 304 the beginning of the engelhart run uh, i'm going to insert a little clip about steve talking about how he came to be on the fantastic four well i did come back in the 80s um I didn't have anything scheduled when I came back. They gave, you know, they offered me the the West Coast Avengers and the Vision Witch, and then later the Surfer. So the FF came up um, several years after I'd come back at that point. But um, uh, you know, John Byrne had had a long run on the FF, and after he left, um, they were sort of scouting around for some different way to go. And and I, you know, I know there was at least one writer. So, uh, like everything in those days, they just came to you and said, I mean, do you want to write the Fantastic Four, but rather than you will be writing it. But, I mean, people didn't ask for assignments in those days. I mean, it was it was all run from the top down. So, okay. you know, they came and said, we want you to do the FF. It's like, okay, sure. Right. And one of the first things you did was take Reed and Sue out of the picture. Yeah, well, I thought we were now at issue 330. Three, three hundred and something, um, and I really thought that things had gotten stale in that book. I mean, there is a, there's definitely a large contingent of people who feel that it ought to be Reed and Sue and Ben and Johnny all the time. Uh, maybe because I'd written the Avengers and the West Coast Avengers and all that, I looked at it and I said, you know, I, this book needs to be shaken up. I thought it had sort of um, gotten stale. Reed and Sue had been saying for years and years in the book, years and years, that they were going to, like, drop out at some point and take care of their child. And I thought, okay, let's do that. So it, the art here is still by John Buscema, but now we have inks by Joe Sinnott. And he is one of the best inkers. He, he was the inker back in the Stan and Jack days. Um, and he does more than just ink. He really fleshes out all of the drawings of for any penciler that he that he works with and he had to fill in all those kirby dots yeah the kirby crackle <laughs> yeah um but he he really takes 
John Buscema's art, which has actually kind of been lackluster through this series and really makes it great. I mean, you compare the splash page in issue 303, which is John Buscema art with uh, Romeo Tanghal's inks, to the way Joe Sinnott treats the thing. And it has a very classic Kirby kind of feel. Or at least it has a John Buscema feel when John Buscema was doing the Fantastic Four in the early 70s. But by this time, and um, Englehart speaks a little bit about working with John Buscema. He's kind of at his, he's past his prime. He's at the end of his career here. And he's just kind of calling it in a lot of the times. And so maybe I'll play a little clip of that as well. At that point in time, he was pretty burnt out on doing superheroes. He he wanted to do Conan. That's what he liked. Yeah. Um, and it, this is just internal Marvel stuff. But I mean, when Kirby left, they needed another Kirby. And Stan chose john to be the guy and so and so john you know took over kirby's books um and got a lot of you know deserved you know he was a great artist but he also got a lot of publicity you know pushing him as the new you know the new guy so he became sort of entrenched at with the upper levels of the totem pole at marvel shall we say i mean when stan left roy took him over and and you know um I, you know, I think I might have, I think my first issue of the Avengers was by John, actually. But, I mean, basically, I never hadn't really worked with John. Um, I knew his brother a whole lot better than I knew him. And when I did meet him, he was kind of like kind of burnt out, um, if I may say. I mean, right. uh, there is a cover. This is going to be really for the, for the super fans out there or whatever. But... There's a cover of the Avengers that he did with Roy somewhere around maybe number 80. I'm just guessing. I could be way off. But it's Quicksilver running away from the rest of the Avengers. And it's it's positioned at an angle. He's coming out at you with super speed. And, it's, and you know, and, and you're looking at it in one of those Batman angly things. It's really a nice cover. The first cover that we did for the FF is Quicksilver running away from the Fantastic Four, and it's a much less interesting <laughs> approach. It's just, you know, it's straight on, it's squared yeah. off, it's like he's running out there. Um, That's Avengers number 75 that you're referencing. There, Okay, good, there you go. Yep. Um, if you look at those two covers, you can see that John had, you know, he'd lost his enthusiasm for this kind of thing. There are two things going on in this issue. The first thing is that Reed and Sue announce that they they plan to step away from the Fantastic Four, and they want and Reed wants Ben to be the leader. Uh, that's the first thing that's going on. The second thing is that Quicksilver shows up, and he's kind of not in the state that we've ever that we've seen him in for a long time. He's he's acting like a villain. He kidnaps Alicia. He's going kind of crazy, and. Um, and so the Fantastic Four have to step in to try and uh, save Alicia. So uh, from the listener comments, uh, James yeah. said that he didn't like Quicksilver being portrayed as the villain. Um, and oh, that's that's fair to say if you're a fan of the Quicksilver character. But um, I thought that it actually fit Quicksilver's character very well. Um, it follows logically from where he is at this point. And... Uh, this is something that I think that Steve Englehart does very well, which is why he's very well suited for the Fantastic Four books. He says uh, in the interview 
he lets the characters speak to him. Uh, so he doesn't just say, this is what I want to do with the character. He says, well, here's where we're starting. This is what the character's doing in this issue. How would the character proceed? How would the, what would the character do next? Right. So faced with... The, the situation here mm-hmm. is that um, Crystal has cheated on him. And so he wants to get back right. So her. Yeah. So basically what he's saying is if Johnny had fought harder to keep her because they used to date and it was pretty serious and it was a messy breakup. Um, but if, if he had fought harder for Crystal, he probably could have kept Crystal, which would let Quicksilver not have experienced this humiliation right. and heartbreak. And so Quicksilver always being portrayed as a hot-headed, quick-to-anger, jealous, envious, self-absorbed, self-righteous, proud, pious character, all of those like negative aspects, with the burden of this emotional stress, he's snapped. He's, he's, um, I mean, he's often uh, portrayed as mentally unstable, and this just sort of pushes him over the edge. Um, he, he has like a psychotic break or a mental breakdown. Later on in, in this run, I think it might be in the next volume, they they blame this all on Maximus the Mad. That Maximus had a hold on Quicksilver's mind. And that's one way out of it, but I don't like it's something that actually does happen in real life is that people have these uh you know, that's the reason why we have innocent by reason of insanity in court cases, because people have these deep emotional stresses and do things that they wouldn't normally do that are out of character. Yeah. Um and logically they make sense to the person. And, you know, if you look at it, you can kind of see how this tracks. But when you step back from it in sort of a scene, it looks, yeah. it looks really weird. Um, yeah. So I think it actually fits him, him very well. Uh, it reminds me of also how he reacted just after the House of M and Decimation events. Oh, yeah. Because there he also blames himself for all the, the loss of all of those mutants. And he goes a little crazy trying to use Terrigen crystals to repower the mutants that have lost their powers. Right. And he actually goes insane. And he's and he's been a villain. He was a villain when he, we first started, right, way back in the '60s. And so he's kind of a reluctant villain uh, for a while. Like he, um, but still, he's yeah. sort of has that moral fluidity, right? That that uh, he can go either way. So it's not. I don't think it's out of character for him not to at slip all. back into this. No. So if Superman showed up and yeah. was acting like this, right. that would be out of character, right? Because he's actually very mentally stable. But Quicksilver being not so mentally stable and morally a little ambiguous, then um, I think this is fine. I, I actually yeah. kind of liked it. Yeah. Okay, we should keep moving on here. Yeah. Uh, I just want to mention that uh, it made me laugh. There is one place where uh, Quicksilver runs away, and the sound effect is acceleration. <laughs> there are some cool sound effects yeah. through here, yeah. Yeah, but there's also a great example of this issue of how... The Fantastic Four uses teamwork to quickly dispatch their foe so that they don't have to have a big drawn-out uh, battle. And, it, you know, it's the same kind of thing that we see in the 2005 Fantastic Four movie. A lot of people said, oh, the fight scene was so short. That's, you know, that's not really interesting. But the interesting part is, hey, you know, they used science to figure out how we're going to stop it, and yeah. then it happens. Well, and the real character moment is that um, Ben sort of figured out how to... right. Um, I wanted to mention that 304 is where 
Steve Englehart actually fixes the dangling plot point of how the thing's mutation stopped. There's one uh, panel where he says, when he went to Monster Island, Mole Man stabilized his condition. Well, and so that's never addressed before. But I thought that was addressed before no, in, it, in the issue. Like it, when Johnny mutates, he has that machine to reverse him. Right, but the thing never says that it was used on him. Also, you would think that if it reversed the, the thing's mutation, that it would put him back to, back uh, to Ben Grimm. Ben Grimm, but yeah. But yeah, it was never explicitly stated before. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on to issue 305. It's called All in the Family. This is the issue that this volume, where this volume gets its title. Uh, and we have um, the thing really contemplating whether or not he's going to uh, take, over, take over the FF or not. And Crystal stops by. So here's where the the story kind of starts because uh, Crystal comes to confront uh, her husband. And we find out that it's kind of a weird situation for the Inhumans. She's not allowed to divorce because she's part of the royal family. So they have to work it out, even though this, I could you could call this an abusive relationship. Yeah, we... and. Um, I don't know if this is intentional and they've re- remembered this or not, but um, the same thing is happening right now with um, Black Bolt and Medusa. Um, they are in the current comics? in the current comics. Yeah, they're they're separated. They don't consider themselves to be married anymore, but they're not officially divorced. She still refers to him as husband, but she's also dating Johnny Storm. Oh, Johnny Storm gets around. Yeah, which is also weird because Medusa is Crystal's sister. <laughs> Awkward. No, yeah, and they actually address that a bit in there. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice to see that they go back to the far history, even in the new comics. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to say about this one? It's kind of just a just a, a chance for Ben and, and Johnny to kind of work things out a little bit. Um, Johnny accuses Ben of asking Crystal to join the FF just to make things awkward for him. Which I think is fair. Yep, absolutely. And yeah. it is actually kind of true. Yeah, it may not have been like, I think... I think she shows up and he just sort of off the cuff says, hey, you want to join the team? Yeah, because she was part of the team before. Right. And it makes sense. Um, But then, you know, um, he sort of starts to wonder uh, subconsciously, was there something else there? Which there may have been. Yeah. Right at the end of this issue, Dr. Doom shows up and it leads us directly into Fantastic Four Giant Size Annual number 20. Um, They were all giant size back then. Yep. Which is a story by Steve Engelharden and with pencils by Paul Neary. Victor Von Doom, uh, originally back in the day, scarred his face by, um, by using a machine that had a flaw in it, but the machine's purpose was to try and contact the afterlife. He's always been obsessed with um, the afterlife and what happens after you die because his mother died and he's always trying to contact her. That's what leads him into um, learning all the, the magic and right. the dark arts. Um, so he tells us here that every year on the summer solstice, I yep. believe it was, um, that he uh, performs some sort of ritual to summon Mephisto to try and uh, battle him um, for his mother's soul to bring her back to life. And he's always failed. And, well, he's going up against the devil. So, <laughs> <laughs> And so he realizes, I guess, after the Fantastic Four X-Men crossover, yeah. what um, Franklin's powers are. He has been uh, researching them. And he decides that if he has Franklin on board, he can actually 
overpower Mephisto and get his mother back. Yeah, that's pretty much it in in a nutshell. And then there's the subplot of Kristoff, uh, who's being held in a hold- holding cell in the Four Freedoms Plaza, um, who kind of who escapes. Yeah. Now it's explained a little bit in uh, in this issue, but Christoph Bernard is a very interesting character. Yeah. Uh, he was a child who was orphaned. Doom had been kicked out of his country. His mother was loyal to Doom and helped get him back into the country. Um, but was killed for it. So uh, to reward the woman's loyalty, he adopts Kristoff uh, as his son. But then Doom is supposedly killed, and that kicks into effect a backup protocol in his robot droids, his Doombots, um, and they overwrite Kristoff's memories with Doom's memories um, so that it's like Doom is still there. Yeah. And so Christoph believes he is Doom. Because th- he is. Because he is. He actually is Doom. And actually, that's addressed in this one. The Doom bots are not able to tell the difference between the brain scans of Dr. Doom and the brain scans of Christoph. Yeah. So uh, he's been held prisoner by the, or captive, I guess, by the uh, Fantastic Four in the hopes that they can find somebody who can um, undo this sort of brainwashing and return him to normal. Yeah. There's also mention of uh, Franklin's pocket universes in here um, as another aspect of his powers. Oh, I just, uh, I missed that. Um, yeah, he, he uh, yeah, they, they reference the pocket universes, which plays a huge role in the 90s, of course, because right. he creates a huge pocket world for all of the, the heroes like Fantastic Four and Avengers to, to yeah. go in when, during the whole onslaught and heroes were born storyline. Right. Yes, the big blue ball. Yeah, the big blue ball. <laughs> and I always wondered, I always thought that that was something they pulled out for like they created that power right. for that yeah. miniseries but it actually is something that stems back to here the 80s uh there's a great line in here that i think really explains the fantastic four really well doom says um or um the uh, narrator the text box says that doom knows that although they are tenacious fighters they are peaceful by nature and their main concern in life revolves not around power but around people hmm. and you think about like the avengers or the Justice League, and their positions are all about power. And you think about like the X Men, and this is you know I, I mentioned this before. You think about the X Men; their main concern isn't about power or people necessarily, but it's about acceptance, acceptance and survival. And survival, I think, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, for for the Fantastic Four, their main concern is people. Good line. Yep. Let's tackle these last two issues together. It's kind of the Diablo storyline, issue three hundred six and three hundred seven. Right. And this is where uh, the new Fantastic Four team sort of comes together. The Inhumans show up right at the beginning to to take Crystal back to the moon, but Crystal says that she's going to stay. And um, no, they come to take Quicksilver back, and uh, Crystal was going to go back with them, and decides not to. Right, and then purely coincidental, Miss Marvel rides into town on Captain America's motorcycle. Because they've sort of been hanging out after the Thing series. Yep. And that's the storyline where, well, she's raped by a, a group of men and has a lot of emotional uh, and and psychological issues yeah. as a result of that. She had a few before, but this really just compounds them. Yeah. So this is, I'm going to play a clip of Steve talking about why he chose Crystal and Miss Marvel to be the two members of the team. Um, Well, Crystal was pretty obvious. I mean, she had been Johnny's girlfriend once upon a time. You know, he had, he had moved over to Alicia, but Alicia was never, 
you know, it never seemed like a serious to the death romance between the two of them. And, uh, you know, I thought Johnny being confronted with a woman that he had been involved with back in the day, that again would lead to storyline possibilities. Uh, and she had a history with the FF, obviously, through the Inhumans and everything else. So, you know, that was all good. And, and I had written her in, in Vision Witch. So Crystal had a history with me and with the Marvel Universe and F, specifically with the FF. So, bam, she was in. The other one, I was looking around, you know, who, you know, you could. there's an infinite number of people who could join the FF. Um and I was looking for somebody who wasn't so obvious. And I was intrigued, you know, Ms. Marvel's backstory was that she had been raped. Um, and I had this idea that hanging out with the thing would be kind of a safety zone for her, would be something where she would be kind of a damaged refugee in a sense to, right. you know, to come in and he's so big and solid and, and, you know, trustworthy and all that. I thought, now that's an interesting dynamic. I didn't think about her turning into the thing later on, but that, you know, that led that concept came directly from the original concept, which was that the two of them might make an interesting um, story and so now we had two men and two women, um, and that was a little different for the FF, and she was not a big star, so that was a little different for the FF. And again, you know, just as a writer, I just saw that there were a lot of things I can do with that. Yeah, I really like um, Steve Englehart um, as a writer for the Fantastic Four. Like I said, you know, he, he understands the Fantastic Four, and in choosing Miss Mar uh, Marvel and Crystal, he is continuing on this um, this pattern and theme of, of family. He's bringing in people with pre-established relationships. And when you're brought into the Fantastic Four, you're not just brought into the team. Um, you're brought into the family. Yeah. And so you have this close family bond and uh, developing of, of uh, these familial relationships. And I think he really understands that. Yeah, and they, and they work well together. Mm -hmm. um, so the, these two issues, I think there's there's one purpose that it serves. Diablo fights the, the Fantastic Four team uh, with Reed and Sue, and in the next issue, Diablo fights the team without Reed and Sue. And so the first in the first time they fight, um, Reed is able to to uh, give some like his leadership and 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 solve the issue and defeat Diablo his way. And then we get to see the thing calling the shots and defeating Diablo his way. So we get to see the, right away that Ben Grimm is a capable leader. Right. And I think it's important for the characterization that the thing says, listen, Reed, if you're going away, you got to let me do this and not come, you know, charging in to save the day if something's going on. Yeah. And we see that Reed is actually tempted by this. And, uh, um, and he says, okay, you know, uh, Sue and Franklin, you're going to have to be patient with me. I've been leading a long time. This is going to be a little hard for me. And they're like, yeah, we understand. Yeah, the, the interesting thing now is that the team is pretty much a team of powerhouse characters. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting as well. Yeah, you have just the strength, the sheer strength of the thing in Miss Marvel. And the elemental control of Crystal and, and Human, Human Torch. Torch. 
and you don't have the intellectual anymore. No. Um, you don't have the kind of defensive character like Sue. Right. Um, well, she's offensive as well, but she's right. primarily at this point used as a, in a defensive role. Yeah, particularly now, but just in general, like, you know, if you ever need defense, she's the one. Yeah. You know, the thing can stop in the way of projectiles, but, you know, she, she can uh, protect more. So it's a very different type of team, and it's really interesting to see the kind of um, threats that they face and and the way that they get out in the future. So the yeah. next volume, whenever whenever volume eighteen comes out, uh, that collects the rest of the Steve Englehart run, it'll be uh, great to talk about that and see where where these characters go. Yeah, and uh, you see Thing realizing the difference in the team that he's constructed um, when he's when they're faced with Diablo without Reed or, or with Reed. And he sort of goes, Oh, I wouldn't be able to do it that way. Right. I well, think it's, I think it's interesting also that the thing says that only Alicia and Sharon have been his true loves, but then, well, what about Tariana from battle world that he spent a year with and was going to spend the rest of his life with? So soon we forget. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he came back and instantly started moping about Alicia and forgot all, all about her. You know, and that's interesting because... Well, she died as well. Steve really gets into the the details of Marvel history in his run. Mm-hmm. Like, really obscure things. Um, so to forget something like that is is kind of interesting. He must not have read Battleworld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is all of the issues in this book here. We, we made it through. And uh, yeah, I, I would say that my general opinion is that I like about half of it. There are some great arcs and such, but this this isn't, it really isn't the best Fantastic Four volume out there. Yeah. As a whole, like I said, as a whole, I think it's really good because it takes us on a complete run from the beginning of the thing's uh, depression through to the end. Um but within that, um, some of the stories fell pretty flat. Yeah. I would say most of Roger Stern's issues are kind of throwaway. There are a few key moments, and especially the wedding and stuff like that, but um, the, ultimately, they're kind of forgettable. Yeah. Not to say that this whole volume is forgettable, because some very important things happen with yeah. uh, Reed and Sue coming and going at different times, um, uh, the formation of the new team... And the exploration of Franklin's powers. And Doctor Doom being kicked out of Latveria has big repercussions down the road too. Yeah, so there there's some big milestones here, but then they just sort of get mixed in with this um, the war world um, aliens and the honeymoon yeah. issue, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a. Uh, I can see why like the 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 premise of the epic collection line is to collect previously unrelated or unreleased material and the reason this stuff has been unreleased is because most of it is kind of unmemorable. If we were if they had a Fantastic 4 complete collection by Steve Englehart, we would never ever see these Roger Stern issues. I'm pretty right. sure they would right, just never come to. We'd have a John Byrne collection and yep. it'd go to the end of John Byrne's run, we'd have a Steve Englehart collection which would start um and then we wouldn't ever see we'd the stuff in the middle. We'd never see these ones in the middle. Um, for that reason, these collections are great. Yeah, and it's definitely fulfilling its purpose. Yep. Yep, there we go. Well, thanks, Eric, for joining us today. You're welcome. Um, I think the next Fantastic Four volume we're going to tackle is um, Into the Time Stream. Which, That's a good one. Yeah, it's the famous uh, beginning of Walter Simonson's run. It's volume 20. 
So we will check that out and see uh, see what happens uh, to all of our beloved characters um, after a few a few years after All in the Family. Yeah, looking forward to that. Thanks. Yeah, me too.